All right, everybody, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Those of you who are Zooming, great to have you with us. Also, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, to which I invite you to turn. With what mix of emotions by this stage of our journey through the book? I don't know. What are you expecting this week? Clarity, light to be shed upon the mysteries and the darkness? Or are you, um, have you seen enough to realize that that's not, um, that's not what's coming? Have I told you the story about the, the book of Job and my Old Testament professor years and years ago? I can't remember. I don't think I have. Not recently anyway. So he, Thomas Rents taught this course on the book of Job. And after, I don't know how many weeks, and they're sort of two chapters into the book. And one of my friends, Matt, who's a pastor in London, great guy, good friend of mine, Matt Fuller, said to Thomas at the end of one class, like halfway through the, the semester, so Thomas, in, in, your, in your classes, normally what happens is, you know, initially it's all a bit confusing and dark, and then you get a few weeks in and the, the light begins to dawn, and Thomas sort of nodded, and Matt then said that there's no light dawning in the book of Job, is there? And Thomas said, Thomas is German, Thomas Rents, he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> And so it is actually with Ecclesiastes. At times, though, it does look like Solomon Kohelet sheds a little bit of light. And I think today might be such a day. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Anyway, we'll pray and then we'll read this. So, Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for one another, for this time you've blessed us with, for your word, the Bible, and for its depth and realism, as well as its clarity its beauty. We ask, Father, that you'd help us to see some clarity today. And even as we seek to navigate the mist of life, would you please show us how to do so safely and securely and wisely? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So I have been receiving a few emails over the last few weeks, last week especially. Uh, I think um, from people who have been listening online or listening to the Zoom, uh, responding to the repeated woeful cries of Kohelet, 
Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, that life is like mist. And a couple of them uh, emailed me to tell me what they're planning to do about it. Life is like mist, so here's my plan for dealing with it. I wanted to know what you thought, Pastor. Uh, One of them, we'll call him John, uh, said, I'm planning to get organized. I have in mind a revolution in lifestyle management, Google Calendar, Google Contact, Google Mail, Google everything. Uh, I've been reading this book called Getting Things Done. Uh, I've got a new smartphone. I'm going to synchronize everything and um, scheduler and my to-do list and daily planner. And it's even got a, um, a special app um, called How to Control the Mist. And it comes with a little fan attached to it, so you can sort of you know, predict future stock prices and housing trends and so on. Um, yes, it's a joke. Very good. You're all getting to know me quite well. Um, yeah, John doesn't exist. Um, uh, but if he did, uh, his sentiments would not be far from the sentiments of many. Maybe a caricatured version of them. But it's interesting, isn't it, that I, I occasionally subscribe to websites that promise to send you email updates every week or every day. Like there's one called Inc.com. You come across this? It's like about business stuff and company news. And, but it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff about um, efficient working practices and the kind of getting things done. Getting things done, TM, is a, a sort of business productivity methodology and the phrase I think is actually trademarked I think it's the title of a book I forget the author so there is there is a whole cluster of people and websites and subscription services and apps and products and systems which promise to allow you to shepherd the mist you know get your little fan and corral the chaos of life into the corner of the room so that you can take control, get organized with your revolution in lifestyle management. So John is one of the people who didn't email me this week. Um, The other person, uh, let's call her Harriet, because I don't know anybody called Harriet, and this would be a good way of sparing anybody from thinking I was talking about them, Um, basically represents the other approach that somebody might take in responding to the news that life is as mist-like and chaotic as they'd always feared, just to give up. Maybe there have been times, actually, where you have felt like, really, Pastor, you're not holding out much in the way of hope for us. And it's tempting. If life is like mist, it explains why I'm never on time, why my work is never finished, why I'm always forgetting things, why I never seem to manage to keep my commitments, even when I really, really, really want to why I'm always losing my car keys and I can never find my handbag and I just ought to give up and walk away. And if, if the pastor is telling me that life is uncontrollable, frustration, unshepherdable mist, then I just kind of quiet resignation is in order. And I think that, I don't know whether that's a temptation for you. Maybe, I suspect it probably isn't a systematic temptation over time for many people. But I wonder if we all have moments like that. Do you have moments like that? Um, you just you kind of feel like giving up. Um, the, uh, have we told them the story, darling, of um, 
the nappies, the diapers. Uh, I think I probably have. With, when, I, when, when we had three very young children in diapers and Nicole was home uh, caring for them during the day and changed, she wanted to go out and she changed one of them and then changed the next one and then changed the next one. And then was it by the time you'd finished the third one, the first one needed doing it? Did it go around twice or was it just once? I can't remember. You, you did six, nap, six diapers, sorry, in England we used to call them nappies. Six diapers in, I don't know, 25 minutes, however long it takes to do six diapers. And I think, maybe, what was it, 15 minutes? You got it down to a fine art pretty quickly, I thought. Um, but you get to that point where you think, am I actually going to spend the rest of my life in this room just going on this sort of never-ending treadmill of diaper changing? You've got it coming, ladies. And we had the wonderful blessing of three kind of largely healthy children, quite closely spaced. I can't begin to imagine what it's like for the Claghorn family. Really, one, two, three, yeah, six. And six, seven. Who am I missing? I can see the six. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, uh, Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) I just can't count. Um, I wonder if if mums ever feel like, just like, I'm done with it. And you know you can't give up, but you feel like that. And so you look in Ecclesiastes, and it's kind of interesting because um, you find descriptions. Have you noticed this? You find descriptions and almost no prescriptions. There are hints of here's what you ought to do, aren't there? Think of the end of chapter 2, for example. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And that isn't quite an instruction as such, but it's certainly a, it's a, an evaluation of certain actions in relation to others. This is a good thing to do. But most of it is just description. Description of the endless cycle, chapter 1 of the world, just keeping going on, and the wind blows to the north and the south and goes round and round and round, and all the streams run to the sea, and the sea is not full, and all things are full of weariness, and I just feel a bit like all things going round and round and round in circles. Then chapter 2, all of your attempts to find meaning in the mist through the pursuit of wisdom or (laughs) self-indulgence or hard work seem to just run out of steam. And then chapter 3, you think you've figured out what to do in some simple situation then you discover there's a time to be born and a time to die and there's a time to kill and a time to heal and a time to do this and a time to do that and there's a time for a a tiny little baby to growl at the back of bible study it's just (laughs) what are you feeding her charlotte what are you feeding your little sister growl pastels anyway is it like the opposite of helium balloons where her voice doesn't go like this but it goes like this and then, remember last week, we introduced, as though it wasn't complicated enough, we introduced the, another element, um, the evil that stalks us, sometimes unseen, sometimes all too visible. And throughout, you have description. There is a hint, I've, I mentioned this, I couldn't resist it, I think last week or the week before, um, in a, a book that describes all of life as Hevel, translated in our Bibles, vain or vanity. I just couldn't resist shining the light of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, Therefore, my brothers, be, be strong, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
Now, the, the word is not hevel because it's written in Greek, not English, but it's clearly designed to pick up the apparent frustration and temporariness of life that Ecclesiastes presents us with. And just to remind us, there is resurrection after death. There is light after darkness. There is hope. So your life is not in vain, and yet in some paradoxical sense it kind of is still, in the sense that we experience this ongoing frustration of living in a life scarred by sin and death and temporariness and our own futility. And all the way through Ecclesiastes, you find not a single direct command in the first four chapters. You notice that. Hands up, you English grammar students, hands up if you know what an imperative verb is. Who wants to explain what an imperative is? Go on, um, let's, Anne or Sarah Bennett. Which one? Go on, Anne, you're the big sister, you can tell us. Right, very good. An imperative is a verb that gives a, a command, like stop, or sit down, or speak up, or stop making that noise, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. It's not indicating a state of affairs, like um, Samuel is sitting, uh, Pastor Neil contemplates the word. It's instructing you in how to change the state of affairs. Sit, stand. And there are no imperatives in the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes. Now, it's not quite true. Let me just modify that slightly. There are three verbs which are in the imperative mood. Chapter 1, verse 10. See, this is new. But that's not giving an instruction to anybody. It's just saying, is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. And the answer is not. It doesn't function as an instruction to the reader. So also in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. The verbs translated come and enjoy are in the imperative mood. But again, that's not giving an instruction. If anything, that's pointing to the futility of following those instructions because you tried come now, enjoy yourself, and it didn't really work. So you get to the end of the fourth chapter and you scratch your head and you realize this is really weird. The Bible is full of commands, full of instructions. And yet, the Spirit has dragged us kicking and, scre- kicking and screaming through five weeks of four chapters. Is it five weeks or six weeks? Goodness, it's been, <laughs> I'm, I'm losing track. I'm losing my mind. Um, without giving us a single instruction. Until now. Where with a thunderous grammatical crash, chapter 5 verse 1 explodes on our consciousness guard your steps. And it it might not stand out to you, but I think it is supposed to stand out as the first unambiguous, explicit, grammatical imperative that is, without the slightest shadow of a doubt, telling you what to do. If what you wanted to know was, what shall I do, Pastor? Today perhaps we will discover, which is why I I began a few minutes ago with what I hope sounded like a slightly more optimistic tone. And so what I want to do today is to explore what I think you will discover is, as so often, uh, a rich and deep and multifaceted instruction in verse 1. Let me just read it again to you. Guard your steps when you go near to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to 
offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And then you notice, it's like Kohelet's got in the swing of it now. It's like, I rather like this giving instructions business. Verse 2, do not be rash. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter a word. Let your words be few. Verse 4, when you vow a vow, don't delay paying it. Pay what you vow. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and so on and so forth. Can you see, I, I, I didn't actually check whether all these are grammatically imperatives, but they clearly have that imperatival force. They are giving instructions, commands, telling us what to do. It's like, here's a life belt in the, in the storm. You might want to grab this. this might, so somebody might be holding the rope on the other end, and they might just pull you out of the dark, turbulence that you found yourself in so we're going to jump in to chapter 5 verse 1 and um, we'll chase it all the way through the bible and discover what it has to say just broadly speaking you can see it's all to do with words you spotted that right first three verses roughly speaking is quite a lot about not using words and then verses 4 through 7 is a fair amount about well Fidelity to words you have spoken. So roughly speaking, those are two categories. But five one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 seems to stand apart from that, and I think we should uh, dig into it a little bit. Let me pause just for a second. Any, any comments or questions so far? Is this making sense? Uh, uh, you all seem like, oh, yeah, it does. Any, any questions you want to raise at this point or observations you want to make? Hmm. Oh, Wow. Had Solomon made any specific vows to the Lord that he ought to have kept, that he didn't keep because he was foolish? What about any, anybody had any thoughts about that? I, I mean, I, you think a lot, yeah. Go on, spell it out for us. Who can remember? Um, Nicole, go on. Right. Right, so as, as king, there were certainly uh, requirements that he should have kept. I don't know whether they were accompanied by formal vows, uh, like um, ordination vows for a priest or a minister. Um, Pastor Neil's going to be digging through. He's probably got something in mind already. Are there any other vows that you think Solomon ke- made that he was rather um, sketchy in his observance of? Loyal, yeah. Yeah, the the uh, the commitment implied in only worshiping the Lord because his heart was led astray to other gods. Do you remember how his heart was led astray to those gods? Wives, Pastor Neil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he multiplied war and women and wine in violation of the command. Um, Loyal's point about the wives. Jack, you want to pick up on that? Wedding vows. Thank you. Wedding vows. Sorry? Yeah. Right, right. 
Yeah, so let's just think about that in a second. Pick up the wives' point, um, Loyal and Jack. He would have made, we presume, wedding vows. How many wives did he have in the end? More than he needed. More than he could remember their names of, I should think. Do you remember, Jack? It was more than 500. 1,400. It was 700 wives and 300 concubines. A concubine is a a woman who um, lacks the legal protection of the marriage covenant, but whom you still uh, treat as um, a wife in other respects. So that's, that's even worse. So absolutely, yes. In response to your question, Sarah, there were very definitely moments in the life of Solomon when he made personal pledges which he violated horrendously. And so now here, I mean, and Pastor Neil pointed this out um, a few weeks ago, we have the old man Solomon looking back over his life and speaking these spirit-inspired words to generations of future sons and daughters of Adam who are called to be wise in Christ, the greater Solomon, and saying, uh, when you vow a vow to God, um, keep it. You know, how, how much ruin did he bring through his infidelity to his own word? And it's interesting, your big, big, big sister, uh, Ruth, when she was here a few weeks ago, she made the point that Solomon, this isn't exactly the words that she said, but the sense of it was, Solomon seems like a fairly bad example of of fidelity in so many ways. And yeah, he is. He's a mixed up character. So yeah, good observation. Yeah, Jack, and then uh, Aaron, yeah. Mm. Amen, brother. Like, he's, he's made some really stupid decisions, and he looks back, and it's like he looks to his son and says, um, please don't be such a muppet as I've been. It's, it's always better, if you can, to learn from other people's mistakes <laughs> rather than your own. And here's Solomon, you know, laying bare his, you know, the error of his ways. Because otherwise, it's... If he's not thinking of that, he must think we're stupid. You know, like, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay, pay what you vow. Um, Obviously, speaking of vows involving money, but other commitments would equally have to be discharged. He must know that we're all thinking this. He's willing to lay bare his abject failure so that we don't make the same mistakes. Or so there's a chance we might not make the same mistakes. Yeah, very good. Well spotted. You, this is one of the reasons, Jack, why I want to encourage you, everyone, all of us, to meditate on the Word of God. Because we could easily take this and say, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't do what Solomon did. No, but just think and meditate on the thousand ruined lives of those wives and concubines, and then the whole history of Israel and the, the division of the kingdom and the, the idolatry and. and being off. Yeah, hauled off by. Yeah, the, the tailspin into which Israel's history went. Remember last year's Bible course when we went through the whole Bible overview? And it's basically Solomon gets to the high point. He's the one that the Lord sets on the top of Mount McKinley or Mount Everest. And there you are. 
I know, let's jump straight off into the abyss. Is, yeah, so we need to meditate on that so we ingrain it within our hearts. Very good, Jack, good work. Uh, Aaron, you or somebody had a comment? Even more so, you're supposed to guard your steps on the way to where? The house of God. I could understand guarding your steps when you're unsure of where you're going, mm. or you're going somewhere possibly dangerous, but guarding them on the way to the house of God, all very interesting. All very interesting. Guarding your steps when you go to the house of God. Thank you, Nan. Where are you? There we are. Um, yeah, and that actually takes us into where I wanted to go next, which is to look in the details of verse 1. Before we do that, any, any other thoughts and comments? Um, yeah, uh, Tim. The, the, the translation is so different, mind me. Mm-hmm, please. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Yes. And draw near to here rather than to give sacrifice fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Yeah, yeah. And I hear what my wife heard. You know, I like my dad. Yeah, just read the first few words of yours. Walk prudently. Walk prudently, right. When you go to the house of God. Okay, walk prudently when you go to the house of God is what um, Tim's got in his Bible. Which is a good um, paraphrase. And what happens when you have a paraphrase is that you pick up one layer of the meaning and you make that more obvious to the reader. Um, And very often that's very helpful. Very often it's very helpful. Because at least it makes one thing clear. But the problem is, the particular figure of speech that's used is literally guard your steps. The ESV on this occasion has, got, has done a really good job. And that word, guard your steps, especially when it's combined with draw near, house of God, and sacrifice, ought to make us go, Bleep, 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 bleep. Guard or keep. Shamar is the Hebrew verb. It's guard or keep. Draw near, sacrifice, house of God. All of that language comes from what, um, what concrete images are, in, are involved there. Where would you, what would you be doing if that language was so to speak, in the air around you. You'd be at the temple, temple, correct. It's worship language. House of God, the temple. Sacrifice, like, well, come on, obviously. Temple. Who was it who built the temple again? Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. Solomon. And these two verbs, guard, sometimes translated keep, sometimes translated in other ways, and draw near. I want to explore a little bit. In summary, what we've got here is Solomon is he's sitting firmly in the, the realm of wisdom. In, that is to say, this is um, he's sitting in the gate of the city with uh, a strong black cup of coffee and a group of younger men around him he's imparting wisdom for life to them younger ladies as well 
he's sitting squarely in the world of wisdom for life. Let's go and see old King Solomon and see what wisdom he's got for us. And we go and meet him in the gate and we'll talk to him and listen to the wisdom. There's a time for everything, boys. It's time to be born, ladies, and there's a time to die. There's a time, you know, and, you, and you're chewing over deeply practical things. It's like what we've been doing, isn't it, in Ecclesiastes so far? Very gritty, earthy, practical stuff. And what he does now is say, right, wait here. And metaphorically speaking, he's going to go and grab a hold of the temple. And not literally, but so to speak, figuratively, bring to our wisdom discussion a whole bunch of temple themes and images. And what he wants us to see, I think, is that there is a connection, a deep-seated connection between wise life, wisely navigating the complexities of life, and pure worship. And so this, you'll sometimes find people who, 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 if you're reading scholarly works on the scriptures, you find people who will They'll speak of different parts of the Bible as though they're only really concerned with one thing rather than another. So the, the Leviticus is all about the temple, and Ecclesiastes is all about practical living. And I want to say, well, there are those emphases, yes, but um, here and there, the scripture authors smash those boundaries, and they bring these themes together. So what we're going to do is trace the development of these words, particular um, the, the word translated guard, sometimes keep, and the word translated draw near, and we'll see how they develop and see how the temple worship themes slot into the practical life themes. Are you with me? I don't know wh- wh- how you make notes, but I will be drawing two big circles on my page and writing practical life Ecclesiastes on the left hand one and on the right hand one writing temple sacrifice worship and then I'd get a bunch of arrows and point from the worship one into this is how I make notes sorry anyway maybe that's why my sermons sometimes go on too long trying to decipher the diagrams all right so the first time that this verb keep or guard appears in the bible is in a very very significant moment. And I want to see if anybody has been um, reading any of the books I've been reading for the last 30 years and can tell me where it is. Um, Where do you find this? Very early on. Somebody was put somewhere to guard. Yeah. Very good. Genesis 2. God put the man in the garden to guard it. Now just look. Turn to Genesis 2. Don't worry about Ecclesiastes, we'll get to it, but we've got to go and grab the temple and bring it over here, like attach ropes to it and winch it in. Drag it, kicking and screaming, to the world of wisdom where Solomon is sitting in the gate with his cup of strong black coffee talking to the young men and women about how to live wisely. In Genesis 2, we have this wonderful narrative, this description um, of what God says to the, the man. Genesis 2.15 the Lord God, you all with me? You've got Genesis 2.15? It's quite near the beginning of the Bible. You can find it. Yeah. Right, <laughs> you've all got it. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man, and that verb is very significant. I'll, we'll talk about that another time. And put him in the Garden of Eden 
to do two things, literally work or serve. The verb is avad, which um, is the, the word f- which is also the name for a slave, a, a worker. Um, and keep it, literally guard it. Adam's job is to be a guard, guardian, we might say. And it seems to be connected with the the function of the garden as a place where you meet with God. The way we know this is because lots of the imagery of the concrete objects that are around him, that are around him, are later find their place in holy places, te- uh, temple and tabernacle. So, for example, gold and um, the so, so gold in uh, verse uh, twelve, uh, bdellium, uh, which is we learn elsewhere in scripture is white like manna. Well, you get manna in the ark, which goes in the in the holy of holies. Water, those rivers, four rivers, trees. There is a an ornamental monument gold tree, the lampstand in the sanctuary, which burns with light from the oil of the spirit that flows from the central reservoir out through the branches. The, the lampstand is shaped like a tree. All of these concrete images with which Adam is surrounded, the things that God has put in the garden around him, we later find in worship places. And he is described as being told to do what the priests and Levites are later dis- told to do. And we'll see that in a second. His job is to guard what priests do they're guardians of the place where God is and of course that's at the heart of Genesis 2 it's where God is in this intimate personal relationship with Adam so Adam is a priest in the sense that he's in the the place where God and man meet and that priestly work is described as serving working and guarding or keeping And it's interesting, when they're thrown out of the garden, the next time the verb appears in Genesis 3, you see what Adam had previously been given the privilege of doing, being given to somebody else. Look at Genesis 3, 24. This is after the sin and the long conversation between Adam and, uh, and Eve and the Lord, and then the Lord responds... And verse 23, the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. So he's working, serving, but no longer serving in the garden. He's serving the dust of the ground from which he'd been taken. Who gets to guard? Well, verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now... The privilege of sanctuary guardianship is given to cherubim, angels. And they keep it until the coming of Christ, actually. The the law was put into effect through angels, Stephen tells us in Exodus, um, in Exodus, Acts 6. Uh, 
angels were the ones who frequently met with the people of God to bring God's word to them under the older covenants. Only a few people had the privilege of doing what the angelic guardians were called to do from Genesis 3 onwards. And those people were the Levites and the priests in particular. So just turn forward with me a little bit until we get to um, the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We'll, we'll come back um, to Exodus again in a second, but I want to show you what the, what the priests and, and particularly the Levites do. In, in Numbers chapter 1, you have the first of two censuses which were taken in the wilderness after the Israelites met with God at Mount Sinai and after they'd uh, built the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus and then they'd had the law of Leviticus read to them. And then you get this census and all the tribes are listed who are able to go to war and their numbers are given uh, 603,550 in verse 46, Numbers chapter 1. But then you discover that verse 47, the Levites were not listed. Why not? Well, the answer is they're not to go to war. They have another duty. The responsibility of the Levites was... Verse 53, the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep what? Guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, what's going on here? Well, in the background is the horrific account in Leviticus 10 of Nadab and Abihu who drew near to God and were consumed by fire that came from the burning incense, because they drew near to God with unholy fire. or you know, They did something wrong in their approach to God. And so they were burned alive before their brothers and their father. And so what the Levites' job is to do is to keep everybody away. They're kind of like tabernacle bodyguards, tabernacle bouncers. They camp around the, the tabernacle in the centre of the camp of Israel. Their job is to keep or guard the holy things of the Lord from the people of Israel. So the people of Israel don't think it's okay just to wander in. They're kind of human cherubim, human sanctuary bouncers to keep the Israelites out. The Israelites don't have this privilege of guarding the sanctuary. The Levites do, and the priests occasionally get to go in. Um, but not the regular, ordinary people of Israel. So what are the people of Israel supposed to do? Do they have to guard or keep anything? Well, it's very interesting. What happens is that the language of guarding in relation to the people of Israel is transferred from guard the sanctuary, that is to say, you're ministering in the sanctuary to the holy God. You're, you're not able to do that. It's transferred from that domain into the domain of practical everyday life. And the thing that you guard is yourselves. Let me show you. Exodus 19, I said we'd, we'd flick back to the book of um, Exodus. Exodus chapter 19. 
Exodus 19, the people are are waiting to meet with God at Mount Sinai. Perhaps they thought that this was the moment when they would get welcomed back into the presence of God again. Just like Adam would be able to shamar, keep the holy place, guard the holy place. And they're told, no, no, you don't get to do that. Exodus 19, 5. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Okay. So you do get to keep something or guard something, but you've got to guard the commitments that you've made to me or that I've imposed upon you, the covenant relationship entailed commitments that Israel was supposed to fulfill. More specifically, Exodus 20, verse 5. Uh, or, sorry, verse 6. This is the... Um, the rationale for the second commandment. This is why you're not supposed to make any carved image of anything in heaven above or on earth, belief or on the waters under the earth. The, the reason is because, verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and do what? What are you supposed to do? Keep the commandments. Yeah, you see? So what do you... Oh, Lord, we thought we'd get to keep the sanctuary. But now you're telling us, okay, we've got to keep the covenant... Okay, we've got to keep the commandments. Yes, do we have to keep anything else? Deuteronomy 6. This is what I was alluding to a moment ago when I said they have to keep themselves. And this is um, another moment where our Bible translators help us with a, a nice smooth paraphrase which actually irons out the word plays that are so significant. It helps us to understand the text. But literally, Deuteronomy 6, verse 3. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and literally, keep or guard to yourselves to do them. Those commandments, that is. That it may go well with you and you may multiply greatly. What are they supposed to do? Well, chapter 6, verse 1. This is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that I've commanded you. Here's all the commandments. You've got to keep the commandments, guard the commandments. You've got to keep the covenant, guard the covenant. Now you have to keep and guard something else. Guard yourselves. So can you see how, how life in Israel worked? You do still get to keep or guard something. But because of Adam's sin, the whole mass of the people of Israel no longer has the privilege of guarding the sanctuary. But you are a holy people. How do you manifest yourselves to be a holy people? You guard the covenant. You guard your fidelity to the commandments. And you guard yourselves. So can you see what's happened? The development of this theme has started to bridge these two worlds. The world of daily life and learning to live in faithfulness. And the world of the sanctuary put it another way how do you johnny israelite and jenny israelite you know probably it would be joshua and something mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you worship god well keep the commandments be the holy covenant keeping people who keep yourselves and then that all seems to be picked up in ecclesiastes Let's flick back to chapter 5, verse 1. With this really striking 
imperative. Remember I highlighted how it stands out in the flow of Ecclesiastes. Guard your steps. So can you see what Solomon's doing? How are you to experience something like the experience of Adam Adam guarding the garden? The priestly privilege of being in the presence of God, guarding the sanctuary. answer is, guard your steps. To put it another way, there is a very, very strong connection between worship, specifically honouring the Lord, devoting yourself to him, praising him, giving him the honour that is due, worship on the one hand, and just how you live. And the connection is made by keeping watch on yourselves, guarding yourselves, and specifically your steps. Come to that in a second, because that steps image takes us off in another in another direction. Let me pause there. Can you see how the, these themes are developing? It's quite kind of tangled and complex, but it does it make any sense? I think it, you're, you're mostly frowning, but also nodding a little bit because it's like, Pastor, this is difficult. It's Wednesday evening. I'm like, yes, I know it is, but at least it's not Friday. Okay. Let me pause. Yeah, go ahead, Mrs. Bennett. So, so far, my temple side is filled up, but I have nothing on the wide hmm. No, you're not. Because what we've done is we've set up all of that, the stuff that's on the temple side, to be dragged across into the wise living side. So how are you going... It, let me put it another way. If you were Eve, you'd be in the garden able to see God somehow, I don't know how, able to worship with a kind of access to him that you, well, that an Israelite couldn't imagine. But you're not Eve. Now you're, um, let's say, some uh, Issacharite woman in the days of the monarchy days of Solomon how are you supposed to experience something like the Edenic closeness to God you can't guard the sanctuary you're not allowed to do that you've got the Levites to keep, keep you away what, what can you guard Yeah. Can you think of, that's a fascinating question, were, were there ever Israelite families who, though imperfect, were nonetheless, let's say, faithful? And can we distinguish between perfection, which is unattainable for anybody apart from Jesus, and faithfulness, which is, you know, like uh, Job was a righteous man. Oh, there's one. Um, uh, Simeon, righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Boaz, 
Um, I think we can distinguish sinless perfection, which is unattainable, from covenant faithfulness. Can you see? And this is a really important distinction because none of you, none of us, certainly not me, none of us are sinlessly perfect, but we could all be faithful to the covenant. Particularly because, and this is where we're going with the next little phrase, draw near, the covenant contains within it the mechanism to deal with our breaches of the covenant in the form of sacrifice. And so how, how are we to experience, if, if you're an Israelite in the days of Solomon, how, how were you supposed to experience something like the, the appropriate relationship with God that you would hope that you would have access to even after having been thrown out of the garden? The answer is keep the covenant, keep the commandment and watch your steps. Guard your steps. Um, Aaron, you had your hand up. Yeah. That sounds like it might be a good idea if there was somebody who was um, uh, like a priest or after the order of Melchizedek or something. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, let me, oh, we, we could, no, let's just pause one second. Um, steps. Why do you think it says guard your steps? It's literally your feet, I think. Because they take you somewhere, yeah? Because you could stumble and fall, yeah, Sam? Well, do not, does not our heart dictate our actions? Right, our heart dictates our actions, and so steps has to do with actions, I guess, rather exactly. than heart, yeah, yeah. Is there a hand up over there? Yeah. This is me. This is you, all right. Maybe there's some connection. Yeah, between. There very much is. We'll we'll go there in just one second. Let me alert you, though, to one really striking direction that the the steps imagery is taken in Scripture. Have you noticed how many times Paul the Apostle especially uses the imagery of walking to denote the whole of the Christian life? Let me remind you of a few references that you know. Limber up your fingers, um, those of you who want to get paper cuts, and I'll just I'll show you a few. Go to Ephesians first. We won't spend much time on any of these, but I just want to show you what, why the steps image is so potent. Guarding your steps is a way of talking about guarding your, the path you take in life. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us. It's literally what it says. Ephesians 5 verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what should you do? 
Does your Bible say live as children of light? No, it shouldn't say. It says walk. Walk as children of light. Now, many translations translate it live. Same reason, Tim, as your translation paraphrase back in, in Ecclesiastes 5. It's trying to give you a, uh, an easy-to-understand interpretive rendering of the text, which is great, it's really helpful, but the problem is it obscures the connections that are created by the actual term that's used. So a slightly more literal translation is sometimes helpful in that context. Be careful how you walk. Walk as children of light. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Isn't that just like Ecclesiastes 5.1 screaming at you? Look carefully how you walk. And in the context of the Bible as a whole, Solomon's sitting in Ecclesiastes 5, and he grabs all of the temple stuff and goes, drags it across here into the world of wisdom. And then Paul says, hold my beer. He's standing over here. And he grabs all of the stuff that Ecclesiastes is talking about, about walking and about the holiness of being in the sanctuary and guarding the sanctuary. And he drags it all the way up into Ephesians 5 and says, right, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Remember, wisdom, literature, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Don't get drunk with wine. Speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and so on. He's, he's then turning the, the words of Solomon into extremely practical how-tos. Finally, we've got some imperatives. So, of course, there's no app with a fan built in to shepherd the mist, but speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you do that in your fellowship groups? Do you sing? Great. Uh, do you avoid drunkenness? Yeah, don't get drunk. That's least to debauchery. Okay. What guard your steps? Be a faithful keeper of the sanctuary, even as one who can't actually go in. Tenth century BC Israelite. Yeah. Um, Coloss- uh, Philippians three. I'm just going to keep working through Paul's use of this term. Philippians three seventeen and eighteen. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Can you see the imagery of walking? It's all over Paul. Colossians 1 verse 10. Um, uh, In verse 9, we've not ceased to pray for you that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Can you see this image? Keep coming. Uh, chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 are the conceptual heart of the book of Colossians. It basically summarizes the entire book. And chapter 2, verse 6, verse 6 says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk again. I mean, it means live in him, but it means more than that. It means the, the, the steps of one who's guarding his steps and therefore fulfilling sanctuary privileges as he does so um i won't keep uh citing these but if you want to make notes i'll read them out and then you can colossians it's chapter 3 verse 7 and then chapter 4 verse 5 in first thessalonians chapter 2 verse 12 chapter 4 verse 1 in second thessalonians chapter 3 
verses 6 and 11. Uh, Pastor Neil told us in 1 John. You noticed this, didn't you, when, when Pastor Neil was preaching on 1 John verse 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice to the, the truth. But if we walk in the light... See, John is like, this is a great idea. I like this image of walking. Paul's got it. I'll have it. And to walk in the light is the thing that Solomon anticipates. Guard your (coughs) steps. Make your steps. Watch them carefully. And as you do so, you're, you're doing what is available to you in relation to guarding the sanctuary. Yeah. But it turns out <laughs> there's even more in the way of sanctuary privilege that Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 has in mind. Because you might ask, okay, imagine yourself as this <sighs> Israelite in the days of Solomon or shortly thereafter, you know, not able to uh, enter the holy place, only able rather to, well, I can live out in my daily life some kind of equivalent of sanctuary worship, but I can't actually go in. The, The Levites are there to guard so that I can't guard. I'm not allowed to. But then you read, to your astonishment, Solomon anticipates something extraordinary, in verse 1, guard your steps when you go near to the house of God. Sorry, when you go to the house of God. Then he says, quote, you see it? To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools because they don't know they're doing evil. That, that verb, draw near, is the next word I want to just explore with you. If guarding is a summary of or part of a summary of what a priest does guard and and serve or work draw near focuses specifically on bringing a sacrifice to the lord the climactic thing that a priest would do when you finish trimming the wicks of the candles and making sure the bread's all lined up and sweeping and dusting and keeping it all clean and putting it all in order and getting rid of all the entrails and putting them in a trash outside and everything, that's all the kind of, that's the equivalent of putting the chairs out for Bible study. You know, it's important work needs doing. Thank you, whoever did it. It's really, really good. We all need that done. Um, see, so that's a really kind of Hevel-like ringtone, by the way. I like. <laughs> if, if Hevel had a ringtone, that would be it. Um, but what's the thing that the priest, the, the, the heart of the priest's privilege? It is to offer sacrifice. And the verb used to describe that process is here attached to Johnny and Jenny Israelite drawing near to the house of God. Solomon seems to anticipate here something that does not become a reality for another thousand years. It's found elsewhere in Scripture in priestly texts. Aaron, the one that you mentioned, with um, you probably spotted this, in Exodus 3, uh, when the Lord uh, confronts 
Moses, Exodus 3, verse 5. Remember what he, he, and he connects the kind of feet thing with drawing near. In Exodus 3, verse 5, the Lord says, don't draw near. You're, you're not holy, and this ground is. Oh, and by the way, take your shoes off. Um, there's probably some ritual significance to that connected with the dust on your sandals and the death that dust is associated with. But it might also be a kind of purified feet image. But drawing near is what Moses isn't yet ready for. And he won't be ready for it for a while. In fact, he won't be ready for it until after he's had his long and exhausting experience of leading the Israelites for 40 years. Well, no, not actually 40 years. He's got to get them out of Egypt. And then after he's had the whole of the book of Exodus and constructed the tabernacle, and then the the glory of the Lord moves into the tabernacle, and everyone's sitting around at the end of the book of Exodus wondering what we do now, because the glory of the Lord has moved in, and we therefore can't go in. And we thought this was some great, wonderful moment, and we can't come near because God's moved in. You turn over the page at the end of the book of Exodus and you meet which book it is, is it? Straight after Exodus? Leviticus, one of the most neglected books in the Bible, and it's all about drawing near. Right? Um, And in fact, it's almost a joke. The the, the word to draw near, which is in Ecclesiastes 5, when you draw near to the house of God, is the word karov, um, or karav. Um, It's also the, the word, we'll come to this in a minute, when um, the, in Mark 7, the leaders of the Jews had the thing about korban, um, it's from the same root. And it's used to describe the act of drawing something near and the thing that is actually drawn near, the sacrifice that's offered. Look with me in Leviticus chapter, chapter 1. And I'll, I'll read it woodenly so you see what it's getting at. So there they all are. They're sitting outside the tabernacle, newly built, glory of the Lord in there, all a bit puzzled, having a kind of Starbucks or something, trying to figure out what to do because they can't go in because the Lord's in there. And then verse one, the Lord called Moses and said, hey, come over here. When any of you carovs, draws near an offering, a drawn near thing to the Lord, you shall draw near your drawn near thing of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If the drawn near thing is a burnt offering, he shall draw near a male without blemish. He shall draw it near to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. And so on and so forth. And again and again and again, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 9, 10, 13, 14, 15, the the word to draw near or the noun that matches it, the drawn near thing, is used of sacrifices. So now you start to see how the whole of Israel's life works. Just think about it. Back in Genesis 3, sorry, Genesis 2, um, Adam is close to God. He doesn't need to draw near. He is near. He gets to guard and keep and work the sanctuary. But then he's driven away, driven out. The cherubim guard and then the Levites guard. And you can't guard 
Their job is to keep you away, lest you be consumed by the holiness of God. But all of the imagery of keeping or guarding is then transferred to what you do outside the sanctuary. You you keep the commandments, you keep covenant, you keep yourselves, you guard your steps. And then Paul's like, oh, I've got an idea, steps, footsteps, feet. Let's turn that into an image for the entire Christian life. Be very careful how you walk, where you put your steps. So all of our lives are what we do outside the sanctuary in lieu of our sanctuary worship. But not quite. Because an Israelite, though he or she can't enter the sanctuary, God's got an idea. If you enter, you're going to be chopped into pieces and set on fire because what was it that was stood by the entrance to the Garden of Eden? Cherubim with sword and fire. So we don't want you to be chopped in pieces and set on fire. So whenever any of you brings near something to be brought near, what you should do is chop it into pieces and set it on fire. That's what sacrifices are. Sacrifices are representatives of the people of Israel brought near to, so to speak, um, enact... Israel's closeness to God. So you can't go in. And if you did, you'd get chopped into bits and burned, which would be awful for you. So instead, bring a sheep. Chapter 1, verse 2. Whenever any of you brings an offering, just bring a sheep, bring a goat, something like that, and here's what to do with it. So you kind of can go in. You kind of can because you offer sacrifices. You can't, but your sacrifices can. And so it was, for the whole of the era of Adam through to Christ. Well, no, yeah, Adam through to Christ and certainly Moses through to Christ. You can't, you can't come in. The sacrifices can. They can draw near to God. Until, and we had this again when Pastor Neil mentioned, when it took us through the book of Hebrews, um, it's one of a number of different places which shows us what Solomon is anticipating. Hebrews 4.16, where the writer, whoever he is, says these amazing words. Let us then, speaking to all of the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So in Christ, we now have that access to draw near ourselves in ways that the old covenant Israelites did not. Can you see? And not only that, the language of sacrifice the things that you draw near, is also retained. But it's now not attached to animals. I mean, the book of Hebrews makes that pretty clear, right? We don't bring bulls and goats and sheep and so on. Where do you find the language of sacrifice in the New Testament? Anybody know? There's a couple of places. Right? In, that's one place. Sacrifice of praise. What's the place you want to go to first when somebody says, how are the Old Testament sacrifices fulfilled in the, under the New Covenant? Yeah, Christ. This is kind of the obvious place. You're just 
you're two steps ahead of the rest of us. So the first and most obvious place is the sacrifice of Christ. But then you find a number of little places where the vocabulary of sacrifice is attached to how we live, how we pray, how we praise the living God. Let me show you a few examples. Um, the most famous one, I guess, is, is Romans 12. Just skip to Romans 12 with us. Romans 12, verse 1. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and this is at the, really the great turning point of the book of Romans, after the first 11 chapters of uh, expounding the gospel and many of its implications uh, for the Gentile world and the, the, the Jewish world of the first century. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present a living sacrifice. So, oh, okay, well, that's a bit odd. We thought that Jesus, chapter 3, was our sacrifice the sacrifice to, to turn away God's wrath. Well, yes, of course he is. So what do we offer as sacrifices in Romans 12, verse 1? Our bodies, yes. The Lord accepts our bodies, not as dead sacrifices, like sheep and goats chopped into bits and set on fire. Living sacrifices, yes. So it's not just that in Christ we are able to access the presence of God in a way that the old covenant Israelites were not. It's that as you're going out day by day, seeking to, well, what does it say in chapter 12? Bless those who persecute you, rejoice with those who rejoice, live in harmony with one another, repay no one evil for evil, be subject to the ruling authorities, owe no no one anything except for the continuing debt to love one another, Um, don't murder, don't steal, and so on. All these things in Romans 12 and 13 and so on. The Lord says, thank you, I'll have that. Living sacrifice. Oh, thank you, I'll have that. Sweet-smelling aroma. The lives that we live are lived in such a way that God accepts them as offerings to him from priests, actually, who who have access to his presence. Okay, I'm conscious that we have, especially in the last few minutes perhaps, skittered around the Bible a fair bit. Let me pause and uh, try and discern from whether there are any questions, whether I've just totally confused you, or whether that's helpfully drawn any threads together. Aaron, yeah. Is the word korban or karov to draw near at all related to cherubim? Um, I can't remember how that's spelt. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it certainly could be. I can't remember what the first consonant is. Q, is it? In that case, it is. Huh, that is really interesting. So that would, that would, if that's right, that would suggest that it, it further links the calling of the cherubim 
who act as guardians to the vocation of priestly drawing sacrifices near to God. Yeah, thank you. I need to check that, but thank you, Mr. Robinson. Good work. Pastor Neil. All right. Let me, let me sketch the big picture I want to leave you with. We have a couple of minutes, and then we've got our usual three minutes after quarter past, obviously, I realize. Um, chapter 5, verse 1, just to try and draw these threads together. For the first time in the whole book, we've got blunt instructions telling us what to do. Guard your steps when you go near the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. They're fleshed out, actually, a lot in relation to what we say or don't say, like keep your mouth shut, mostly, which is maybe something we'll think about another time in Ecclesiastes because it comes up a few times. And also the issue of vows, which, Sarah, you raised with your question about Solomon, and it's particularly potent. But the vocabulary, here's the crucial point that we've talked about, the vocabulary of guard your steps and draw near connects the very practical daily life wisdom that Solomon is trying to inculcate in us with the privilege of worshipping in God's presence, being in the holy place, drawing near to him, and even offering ourselves, our bodies, our lives, our praises, our actions as sacrifices, which he accepts as pleasing to him. So there is a deep-seated connection between the practical, be careful how you walk, walk in love just as God loved us, all of the, the daily striving for holiness, which I want to keep urging you to strive for. There's a deep-seated connection between that and offering sacrifices that are pleasing to God and being welcomed by him into his presence. And that, it seems to me, is the connection that Solomon forges here. Okay. Any final comments or questions? Yeah, go ahead. Was there some connection earlier, maybe in the last year, that between the, um, the architecture of the temple and, and worship, how the, that was, there were certain features that now are evident as we worship, like physically? Mm-hmm. That. Uh, are there connections between the architecture of the temple and aspects of our worship? Um, I would say yes, but the connections are, are not as simple as temple architecture, church architecture. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the overall structure of Old Covenant sacrificial worship is very much um, uh, not, I won't say quite imitated, but. Um, it's the pattern on which historic Christian worship is based. And the reason is, in one sense, it's obvious that the pattern for Old Covenant, covenant 
renewal, worship with sacrifice and offering and so on, is reflected in the gospel. And that gives shape to our lives and to everything else we do. God takes initiative, draws us near to him, we confess our sins, we're renewed and strengthened, we're taught, we're fed, we're commissioned to live for him. That shape, the, the, the logic that's inherent in the gospel is inherent in worship of God's people throughout all ages. So, yeah. yeah, Aaron, then we should finish. Yeah, what is a sacrifice of fools? Well, it says, doesn't it? To draw near to listen, that's good. Uh, so the sacrifice of fools would be what? Remember, you guys were all sitting in the gate with Solomon with a cup of coffee, listening to the bearded old king teaching wisdom to you. Drawing near to listen, well done. Sacrifice of fools, they don't even know what they're doing. They don't even realise it's wrong, but it is. Verse 2, rash with your mouth, heart be hasty, let your words be few. And we, and we didn't really explore that in much detail. Uh, um, it's really, really important, but I'm not worried because we'll definitely come back to it later in Ecclesiastes. The issue of... Yeah. What was it that um, Lisa Simpson says? This is quoted in the book... That Mrs. Capone lent, no, flagged up for me on Ecclesiastes by um, Pastor Gibson in Aberdeen. Um, something like, uh, better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt or something. <laughs> Is that right? Was that, was that Lisa Simpson? It's everybody. <laughs> I think probably it wasn't unique to her. I think that's, and that's what's going on here. We, we'll come back to that another time, like I said. Okay, it's 20 past. I've ran over time. Sorry. All right, um, thank you very much for um, sitting tight, holding on to the edge of your desks and plunging with me through that rip-roaring tour through um, large swathes of Old Testament and then New Testament scripture. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll be on our way. Merciful Father, thank you again for the intricate interconnectedness that we find in your word. And even today as we've um, occasionally swum in waters that are perhaps deeper than we realized and maybe become submerged at one or two moments. We pray that you'd send us out from here with the clear-headed recognition of the privilege that we have of being called to live lives which you accept as offerings and which indeed are lived in your presence for we are filled with your spirit and empowered by him. So teach us, we pray, to guard our steps and to walk in love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. God bless everybody.